Here at The Longest Shortest Time, we know that communicating with your kid can be hard, but it is so satisfying when you find something that works. Maybe you write each other letters. Maybe you've created a secret code language. Maybe you play Two Truths and a Lie at dinner. Well, right now, we are working on a book. It's called Weird Parenting Wins, and it'll feature real tips from real parents about how to get your kids to tell you things and how to share important things about yourself with your kids. And you, you, my friend, can be in this book, but we are only collecting stories for a little while longer, so we need to hear from you now. We're actually collecting all kinds of wins, and we especially need to hear from parents of older kids. You can even tell us creative strategies that your own parents used on you. It is super easy to submit your story. Just go to longestshortesttime.com and click participate. This book will be so good thanks to you. We can't wait to hear what you have to say. This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank, and I am here with producer Abigail Keel. Hey, Abigail. Hey, Hillary. So, Abigail, this is the final episode in our series, It's a Real Mother, all about discrimination against working moms. And we've covered a lot in this series so far. We've talked about what discrimination looks like, why it happens. And if people haven't heard those episodes yet, they should go back and find them. Abigail, what episodes are they? Those are episodes 141, 142, and 143. All right. So 143, where did we leave off? Yeah. So in the last part of our series, our producer, Kristen, brought us to Badger, which was that company up in the woods of New Hampshire. Right, where they can bring their babies to work. Yeah. And, you know, that story is proof that some companies are really good at instituting their own creative policies to help parents in the workplace. And there are other companies who are doing great things, too. For instance, maybe you've heard Etsy. They give all employees 26 weeks of fully paid leave after the birth or adoption of a child. And Hilton Hotels gives moms 10 weeks of paid leave. Well, that sounds like progress, right? Yes, it totally is. But the thing is that when you leave this to companies as a choice, um, there are plenty who aren't going to make the choice to give generous benefits to their employees, which means a lot of people fall through the cracks. Like, for instance, I came across something when I was looking into these kinds of policies that I can't stop thinking about. And it's a, it's a type of parental leave policy. It's often called tiered leave. Tiered leave. Yeah. And so this is actually pretty common. A lot of bigger companies have something like this. Um, an example is Yum Foods, which is the corporate owner of KFC and Taco Bell and a few other fast food uh, brands. So they offer different kinds of employees different leave. So um, if you work in a corporate job, like at their headquarters, you get access to 18 weeks of paid leave. Um, but shift workers, which, you know, it's the majority of their employees, don't get any leave. Nothing. No paid leave. Zero. Ah. Yeah. And Starbucks has something similar. Walmart, the largest employer in our country, has a similar policy. I mean, they give their floor employees some paid leave, but not as much as their corporate employees. You know, I've got family members who are shift workers at Walmart, and I knew what they got wasn't great. But but I also didn't know it was so different from what the corporate employees get. Yeah. 
And you know, a lot of our series so far has covered people with office jobs, but actually one in five working moms in our country has a low wage job. That's a million moms. That's a lot of moms. Right, yes. So when we talk about discrimination, we need to talk about how it affects everybody. And and that's what we're going to talk about today. But wait, 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 wait. We got to also talk about solutions. Right, yes, yes. We will also do that today. Kristen has been working on something, so she's going to come in later and tell us about that. Okay, so Abigail... Can you break down for me exactly what you mean by low-wage workers? Yes. So what I'm talking about here is jobs that are typically lower-skilled. A lot of times it's shift work, um, you know, industries like retail, food service, cleaning, a lot of hospital jobs. And a lot of times these jobs are part-time or on-call or seasonal. And I wanted to know, you know, what discrimination looks like in these kinds of jobs. So I called around to some organizations that work with low-wage working moms. I had conversations with several moms, but there was one mom I talked to who really stood out to me. <laughs> that amazing laugh comes from a mom named Keisha. Okay, my name is Keisha Robinson. I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Keisha is really remarkable. She's raised nine kids. That's uh, that's some serious momming. Yeah, and she's had firsthand experience with a lot of the issues that I want to talk about today. I got in touch with Keisha through this organization that she works for. It's called Nine to Five. Nine to Five. Yeah, so they're this nonprofit organization. They have chapters all around the country, and they work with women like Keisha to lobby for legislation and educate other people in the community. Keisha started out with them as a volunteer and— now she's a project manager for the branch in Wisconsin. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Keisha has been working in low wage and shift work for most of her life. And she's also been a mom for most of her life. I had my first child at 16 and she is now she's 24. And she was the first. And later on, I had eight more. So I have nine altogether. And she was the uh, first girl and the rest were um, all boys. Keisha's got a rowdy crew. She told me that her family likes to play this game. Um, I don't know if you've played it before. It's called Blind Man's Bluff. Oh, yeah. I think I've heard of that. Okay, yeah. So it's like, you know, if you don't know, it's this game where you, like, turn off all the lights, you blindfold somebody, they're running around tagging people in the dark, and then once you get tagged, you wear the blindfold and you tag people. So I I just like imagining Keisha's family running around in the dark. (laughs) There's an advantage to having a really big family. Yeah, yeah. You've got your automatic game squad. Keisha told me she loves her family at the size that it is. Her youngest kid is 14 now, and a few of her kids even have kids of their own. So So they're pretty much all grown up now. Yeah, yeah, and she's like the matriarch of this big clan. But don't get me wrong. I mean, she says there was hard stuff, too. Um, One thing that made it particularly hard was that Keisha was supporting her kids basically on her own. All of Keisha's kids have the same dad. It's a guy who Keisha met when she was younger through some family friends. Um, they had a relationship on and off for like 12 years, but Keisha says that he was abusive towards her and the kids. You know, it's like on the outside looking in, it's easier to say, you know, if you could have get out that situation, get out. But it's just never as easy to get out as people think. Keisha would leave, then she'd come back, she'd kick him out, then they'd make up. Eventually, though, Keisha did break things off for good. And throughout all of this, Keisha was working on and off in lots of different jobs to support her kids. What kinds of jobs did she have? Yeah, so she told me she worked as a hotel cleaner. She did, like, office admin work. Um, She did a couple different jobs in the healthcare field. 
But no matter what her job was, Keisha was dedicated. Like, she was working as um, an in-home aide for this elderly guy, and she told me she did a bunch of stuff that wasn't in the job description, just like walking him around the neighborhood and running errands. In fact, I had an uncle tell me before, like, um, sometimes when he said, when you start your new job, just don't work so hard. Because I had a tendency to just give it my all and work super hard. And he said, it's okay. You know, you have to work hard, but don't overdo it. <laughs> <laughs> did you take that advice or did you just no, ignore it? No, <laughs> I always kept my, um, I always kept my, you know, solid work method. But like I said, I talked to Keisha about some of the challenges that she's faced as a low-wage working mom. And there are sort of three big things that actually like came up again and again in my conversations with low-wage working moms. All right. So what's the first thing? Yes. So, um, I mean, actually, before I get into any of the things, there's kind of a pre-thing to know about. A um, pre-thing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Which is that uh, it's just important to recognize here that women of color have the highest wage gap of anybody. Um, they experience racial discrimination on top of gender discrimination. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's something that's going on for Keisha here too. Right. But the first way that discrimination affects low-wage moms specifically is in flat out losing your job because of becoming a mom. Um, lots of moms deal with this, as we've heard, but the way that it pans out for many women in low-wage jobs just looks different than than women in higher-wage jobs. So in higher-wage fields, you see things like moms not re-entering the workforce after taking maternity leave or um, moving jobs after dealing with a manager that's discriminated against them in some way. But in low-wage work, it can be a little bit more blunt. And Keisha experienced this herself when she was in her early 20s and pregnant with her fifth child. I was working at a popular nursing home here in Milwaukee, um, Wisconsin, and I worked as I became certified there Um, as a CNA certified nursing assistant. So Keisha got six weeks of training to become a certified nursing assistant, and she worked in this job for about seven months. She had all kinds of different duties, and some were pretty easy for a pregnant person. Total personal cares, um, grooming, feeding. But yeah, there there are moments where you had to lift them to take them to the bathroom, bring them back um, to transfer them into wheelchairs, um, different beds. So it definitely included a great amount of um, lifting. Yeah, you know, a lot of times when you're pregnant, uh, they they tell you not to have as much stress, not to do the, like, metaphorical heavy lifting. (laughs) But this was literal heavy lifting. You're not supposed to do that either. Right, yeah, and it ended up causing her pain that she went to see her doctor about. He told her wasn't really safe and that she should ask for lighter duty or for time off. So on her next shift, Keisha went to speak with her supervisor. I remember it being doing a lunch break. And so I told her I had to speak to her about my doctor. Um, I also had the paperwork, which is funny because she didn't take it. Mm. Um, I explained her the situation and she was like, yeah, I'm sorry. Um, the due to the staffing cuts and the needs, um, they wouldn't be able to hold the position. So Keisha was essentially fired on the spot. Like basically when you leave today, okay, you don't have to come back. And I just remember just being so shocked the rest of the day because I didn't know what to do. And I didn't have the experience or the proper knowledge, I should say, or even maybe confidence to go and talk to someone in human resources because she was a supervisor. And I felt that, okay, if she told me that that was the end of the reach that you know, no one else could help me. 
I thought this is the way it works, like, and I didn't understand it, like, so I was thinking in my head, like, wow, almost a year and nothing, like, so when I have the baby, I just have to start over, and then, you know, I immediately started thinking in my head, like, okay, so I'm eight months, almost eight months, so I still have another month, and then how am I going to support the other children, you know, at home, and as a result, yeah, I had to um, go on state assistance. Man, that sounds really hard. Yeah, and that job, Keisha says it was a really good job. She was able to support herself and her kids on the salary, had regular hours. Losing it was a big blow. Yeah, I can imagine. But just to just to play devil's advocate here, I'm, I'm imagining this from the company's perspective. So Keisha in this job was in a more physically demanding position than, say, working at a desk. So... Like, if you think about this from the company's perspective, I-, I can see how they might be like, well, you can't do this anymore, so let's just find another person who can. Right, yeah, and that that exact situation pops up all the time in low-wage jobs, and that's kind of why we have laws about this stuff. So, you know, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act says that technically an employer should provide light duty to a pregnant employee if they have a policy offering light duty to employees who have physical or temporary disabilities. But is this thing that happened to Keisha, is this illegal? Yeah, so I checked in with 9to5 about this, and (laughs) it's very murky territory, basically. On the one hand, like it, it is reasonable to expect that Keisha's employer would have just held her job for her after she took unpaid leave to have her baby and all of that. Um, I mean, after all, they did invest in training her for the job. But legally, they had no obligation to do that under FMLA because Keisha had only been working for them for about eight months, and FMLA kicks in only after someone's been there for at least 12 months. You know, um, organizations like 9to5, they try to track this stuff, like how often women lose work because of pregnancy um, in the way that Keisha did. But because in official records, it just looks like Keisha quit her job— it can make it really hard to get accurate numbers. Um, 9 to 5 collects tons of stories and anecdotes like this, but but the actual numbers are are almost impossible to nail down. All right, so got the picture here about how discrimination and losing your job looks different for women in low-wage jobs. Abigail, you told us there were three things. What's the second thing? Yeah, so the second thing that came up in my conversations with Keisha is welfare. So basically, government benefits of all kinds. Now, there were times in Keisha's life when she really needed these. You heard her say after she lost her job at the nursing home, she got some state assistance. But the thing here is that these benefits can be really hard to access when you need them. A good example of this from Keisha's experience is at one point, Keisha was using a food share program. So that's basically food stamps. She had a part-time job. So she was working 35 hours per week. And the amount of money she got for food was calculated from her income, But then she got bumped up to full-time, which was only five more hours than she was already working. From like 35 to 40 hours a week. Yeah, exactly. So her food share subsidy was readjusted for her new income. And I remember them cutting my benefits by like 300 and something dollars, uh, my food share, which was a big deal because it's going to cost me more out of my check than the raise. You know, so it didn't, it actually put me back in the negative. And I didn't understand that. I just don't get that. I don't understand that. So what you're telling me here is that her benefits were cut by more than she was getting by going full-time? Exactly. And, 
You know, this kind of thing happens not just with food stamps, but with all kinds of state benefits like child care subsidies or housing subsidies or help with bills. You've got to make under a certain amount to qualify, so it can end up encouraging people not to work. Keisha actually had this happen once where she was considering taking a temporary position, but it conflicted with her ability to access a child care subsidy. So she just didn't take that job. And I will say this. Every time I had to pass up on a job, I needed that job. Jeez. Yeah. And this brings me to the third thing that came up in my conversations, which is trying to balance working with being a mom. (laughs) I don't know anything about that. (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, I don't have to tell you that this is a challenge for all working moms, no matter their jobs. But low-wage work can be really unpredictable. Jobs can be seasonal. Shifts can be on call. Yeah, I had those jobs before. Um, Like if a person didn't come in or if I was working that shift and the next person didn't come in, then the supervisor there would basically tell the previous worker, okay, well, you have to stay. We have nobody else um, to cover. So, yeah, I found myself in those situations a few times. Another thing about low-wage work is you might not have the same schedule each week. So you might not know when you work until the day before or the day of. You've got to have a pretty flexible childcare situation lined up. Yeah, just try booking a babysitter at the last minute. I dare you. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah. I mean, a lot of folks end up relying on family. That's what Keisha says she did. Some people also just bring their kids to work with them. So what about, like, taking your kids to the doctor or going to a meeting at school? This stuff happens all the time. How did Keisha figure that stuff out? Yeah, I asked Keisha this. Um, She told me that with school stuff, like, people were pretty flexible with her, but— If there was an emergency, she'd just take a hit at work, which for her was a big risk. You know, I would um, accumulate a couple of extra missing days or late um, coming in late due to appointments and all that added up. And it just, you know, looked poorly as, you know, as on your employee record, I should say. Did you ever lose a job because of that kind of thing? Yes, I did. I did. Um, I actually lost one. Let's see. It's a place. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but they have services. They We do third-party calling for the hard of hearing. Oh. And mm-hmm. um, they strictly go by a point system. This place was so strict. And and I totally lost that job because of that. Um, I remember going to work one day and them calling me in the office and say, okay, well, you've reached a 10-point max and things like that. And then I explained, you know, I tried to explain, you try to explain, you know, the reasonings, but but yeah, I was actually, um, I had to resign. And as you can imagine, Hillary, quitting your job because of something like this, it doesn't feel good. And what was crazy is it kind of brought back feelings from the nursing home situation, because that was, I mean, I know it was two different situations, but it's just at the end of the day, just being told that you can't work or you being let go is like a blow because the first thing you think are the bills, the kids and the bills, like you have all these expenses, you know, that are still there, but the job is gone. And so it's like, it it leads you to, you know, you wake up the next day and you just don't feel the same. You look all around you and it's no really not a lot of resources. And it's like you feel like you're running out of time. But, you know, it's, it's very a bad situation. It's a bad feeling. So, Hillary, you know, Keisha knows that there are things that she probably could have done differently in her life. Um, but 
There are also some systemic disadvantages here that people don't always, like, acknowledge or even really understand. Uh-huh. And, you know, in her work with 9 to 5, Keisha's gotten to uh, meet with lawmakers and community leaders in her area. She's gone to lobby days and helped plan rallies. So I asked her, like, what does she think will help? What does she want lawmakers to do? Um, I wish they really take the time to hear our stories and a couple of stories from the parts of the community that's really, really affected. I really think they need to hear the the really deep down root of from people that's being affected. So, so basically, she's saying she wants people to listen, right? Right, and that makes sense. Like when you've got a problem, the first thing you want to know is that you're being heard. Yeah, and, you know, stories are powerful. (laughs) Right, obviously we think that, right? (laughs) But I'm just feeling like I'm looking for action here. Like, what else can people do other than listen? That's not necessarily going to change the situation. Like, I want want there to be a thing that people can do. Uh, Oh, (laughs) I've got a solution. (laughs) Kristen Clark, our producer, has just busted in the door of the studio. She looks very excited about something. Kristen, what's going on? Yeah, I think there's actually something that we can do here. But in order to tell you about (laughs) it, I have to take you to Sweden. Sweden. (laughs) Not Sweden, Kristen. All of the solutions that everyone has for everything happen in Sweden. I know, guys, but this one's surprising, I promise. Okay, I guess in a minute, Sweden. Stay with us. We are back. And just before the break, remember, producer Kristen Clark busted into the studio with something big to tell us about. So she's here with me now. Kristen, what do you got? Okay, so before the break, we heard the story of Keisha and about how, you know, precarious it is to be a working mom when there's so little social support. And it just feels like for working moms and really, honestly, for anyone, it's just so easy to fall through the cracks. So I started doing research about countries that are getting this right. And I mean, it just seems like there's one fix that would make a big difference. All right, I'll bite. What is it? Making paid maternity leave and support available to all moms. Yeah, I mean, Kristen, so you mentioned Sweden, and Abigail and I groaned, and and I just, I have a feeling I already know where you're going with this. Like, Sweden does everything right, blah, 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 blah. Don't they offer, like, a year of paid parental leave or something? Actually, it's like 16 months. Uh, See what I mean? No, 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 no. Okay, look, look, look. So I feel like before I tell you this story, we need to just, like, get this out of our system really quickly. So let's do a 30-second, longest, shortest time roast of Sweden. (laughs) Right? Okay. Okay. Here we go. Okay, so Sweden, you're so far to the left that your liberals are your center-right party. Sweden, because I'd be totally cool with, like, 104% of my income going to taxes. Sweden, your government is so woke you have a minister of gender equality. Yes, this is me. Hi, hi, this is Kristen. This is Maria Arnholm. I am a a member of parliament for the Liberal Party of Sweden. I'm also a former minister of gender equality. Yep, ladies and gentlemen, this is a job that you can aspire to in Sweden. They've had one since 1954. Maria left her post as the Minister of Gender Equality in 2014. And Maria had a front row seat for this story I'm going to tell you. 
I started off as a liberal when I was 18 years old uh, and joined the, the, the youth party. And that was mainly because of feminism and my my uh, urge to make the world more equal for men and women. So I have a long engagement in that subject. Maria came of age in this really exciting time in Sweden. In the generation right before her, there'd been this big, huge cultural awakening, you know, like there was in lots of places in the 60s and 70s. A lot of old conservative norms were thrown overboard. There was this giant push for equal rights laws for women, a lot of awareness about the unpaid labor women did at home. And a lot of people were saying, hey, maybe dads should pitch in more, maybe share that work equally. Now, for decades, women had already had six months of state-funded paid maternity leave. And in 1974, they decided to do something super revolutionary. What's that? They became the first country in the world to give paid parental leave to both women and men. Wow, that's pretty great. I mean, like, dads should have the same opportunities and responsibilities as moms, right? Yeah, I mean, it was really forward-thinking at the time. And over the next couple decades, Sweden literally doubled down on this paid leave thing. So they went from six months of parental leave to almost nine and then a full year. And by 1989, each family was getting 14 and a half months for each child. Wow. Yeah. People got like 90% of their salary for most of that time and then like a lower rate for the last three months. And the couples could divide this leave between them any way they wanted. Oh, I'm starting to feel like roasting Sweden again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Maria says politicians in Stockholm were like, we are crushing it with this gender equality thing. Very proud of Sweden being a country with equal rights for men and women. And just like waiting for these equal rights to turn out. <laughs> well, Kristen, this just sounds like our wish list come true, right? So like at this point, they've got paid parental leave for everybody uh, for like a really long time for moms and dads. Yep. And they had subsidized childcare too. The dream. Yeah. Everybody was like, great. This new egalitarian era should be rolling in. Any minute now. But no. No. 15 years after this policy was introduced, not a whole lot had budged for moms. There was still this enormous gap in wages between moms and dads. There weren't a whole lot of women in powerful positions. And women were still doing almost all of the childcare and other unpaid labor at home. Here's Maria. Women had all the rights to, to study everything, to work, to share parental leave. But even if, if a man and a woman live equal lives, once you have the first child, the inequality starts. It was clear that the equal rights was not enough. Well, it sounds like women were running into that same career cliff, just like they are here. Wait, so where were the men? I thought they had access to paid parental leave. That's the question, isn't it? In 1991, only 6% of fathers were taking any paternity leave at all. And the ones that did? Well, there was a nickname for those guys. They were called velourpapper. I don't know what the name for velour is in English. It's a um, vel velvet. It's like stretchy velvet. <laughs> and there's your problem. Taking time off with your kid would get you branded as a stretchy velvet-wearing sissy pants. And around promotion time, bosses made it very clear that if you were a dude asking for parental leave, you were not going to be taken seriously at your job. 
Although, I gotta say, our editor, Peter Clowney, whenever he hears this story, <laughs> says that he would very much like to wear a velour tracksuit. Yeah, I mean, and we take him very seriously, right? We do. We're very seriously. Very seriously. Very seriously. But back in early 90s Sweden, not so much. And what's worse is that this wonderful extra generous leave policy, as much as families loved it, it was actually backfiring on women. If you have parental leave for 12 months and you have three kids, then you're out of, of the, the labor market for, for quite a few years. And the employers will say, we'll see, oh, I have a woman and a man, they, the same age, the same fertility, but I, I can be 100% sure that this woman will have a child or two or three. So, of course, I will invest in, in the guy instead or in the man instead. But... As it happened, just a couple years before all this, the government had organized this big commission on power and equality in Sweden. And as part of this, they'd gathered together a bunch of pretty awesome feminist thinkers to do a report on gender equality. And their report laid a lot of this stuff really bare. And like what, were there any solutions? Yeah, but one of them that they floated was super controversial. The Daddy's Month. The Daddy's Month? That That's a real thing? Yep, the Daddy's Month. So this takes a little bit of explaining. Up to this point in Sweden, couples with a new baby got 450 days of leave to split up exactly how they wanted. So if you were a dad, you had the right to transfer all of your parental leave over to your partner if you didn't want to take it yourself, which is what everyone was doing. Moms could do this too, but in practice they never did. So someone proposed, what if we make it so that one of those months of parental leave can only be used by the father. He can't transfer it over to his wife. So basically, they're, like, forcing dads to stay home for a month. That's the daddy's month? Well, nobody was forcing anybody to do anything. But if they didn't use that month for themselves, nobody got to use it. The family would just lose that whole paid month off. So there was a pretty strong incentive to take it. Well, what about gay couples? So the language of this rule actually had nothing explicitly targeting dads. It just said each parent had a month they couldn't transfer. So in theory, there was a mommy's month too, or, you know, like a same-sex partner's month. But I mean, the clear target of this rule was these macho dads who were too afraid to man up and take their leave. And I should tell you, politicians hated this idea. Why? I mean, they didn't want to touch it for all the same reasons that this sort of thing would tank politically in the U.S. Like, it looked like government meddling. Like, like people would be like, keep your government hands off our leave. Right, like, it should be our choice how our family divides gender roles and how we use our paid time off. So, no politicians were behind it. Nobody? Well, one guy was. A guy named Bengt Westerberg. Bengt Westerberg. I love these Swedish names. I know, they're so great. Westerberg was the head of the Swedish Liberal Party and Maria's boss at the time. And Maria says he was kind of an old-fashioned dude, opposed to stuff like gender quotas or anything like that. But this equality report was a game-changer for him. And when uh, Mr. Westerberg read these reports, he really, you could almost hear how something fell from his eyes and he really saw the question of gender equality in a new light. Maria says basically what happened is he finally got the concept of systemic sexism, realized the government had been spending taxpayer money on a policy that was actually deepening inequality. So he made this his big soapbox issue. A man did. Yeah, a man. 
And when his party got more power in 1995, he sort of bargained this rule into existence. And what happened? Did people freak out? Nah, not really. I mean, some people weren't thrilled about it for all the reasons I mentioned, but, I mean, the policy did the one thing it set out to do. It made paternity leave normal. People think you should use your rights. If you if you can get money for something, you should do it. And not, not, not taking care of that month or the month we have now is a little stupid. That makes it much easier to just do it. Hmm. There's less stigma because you're a fool not to take it. Yeah, yeah, almost. <laughs> Maria says she suspects that there were probably a lot of dads who'd wanted this all along. They just hadn't had a way of asking for it before. The gender norms in their workplaces were just too rigid. This new policy gave them permission, lifted the taboo. And the rate of dads taking leave jumped to more than 80% within just a couple of years. That's a lot. Yeah. And in the years since, they added a second daddy's month and then a third. Oh, so now there's the daddy's months? Yeah, the daddy's months. Now about nine out of 10 dads take parental leave. So it sounds like this stigma around paternity leave, like the stretchy velvet thing, that must be gone. Yeah, I mean, at least for locals. There's a story about an international guest who came to Stockholm and and, um, really liked it here and was so astonished by all the gay nannies that they could see in Stockholm. Because to, to this person, it was unthinkable that they were fathers. Unthinkable, like completely unthinkable, right? To to imagine men hanging out with their babies on a weekday afternoon. (laughs) Right. Funny side note, I heard this story a lot. Like every single Swedish person I talked to for this episode told me that they had like a friend of a friend who had said something about all the gay nannies. Wonderful. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, for Maria, she can see the change in her own family too. She says that her father-in-law, like her son's grandfather, had never cooked a meal or changed a diaper in his entire life. Oh, I, I really pity my my father-in-law. He 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 was a good man, but but he 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 was he was father in the way that men were fathers these days. But to my sons, who are 30 and 34 now, it has always been obvious that there should be fathers, that they should raise a family, that they will take a big part in that. And one of my sons really tries to talk his girlfriend into taking, <laughs> letting him take the full part as much as possible of the parental leave because he's really looking forward to to be a father. And, and just the thought that they should not change diapers or should not cook food or should not sing lullabies for the kids, that it, I mean, that's unthinkable. Hmm. And it was not two generations ago that was the norm. So I think that's that's an achievement. Okay, but Maria's a politician. That's what she would say. I know, I know, I know. So, to get an inside look at how this works, I found myself an international spy. <laughs> a spy? A spy. <laughs> That's all you're going to tell me? Yep. All right. Stay with us. Oh, you have your mouth closed, don't you? Advertisements. We are back with Kristen Clark, who apparently has been engaging in international espionage in Europe for the last couple of months. (laughs) I mean, sort of. I, I didn't go to Sweden myself, but I talked to somebody who lived there. Who'd you talk to? 
Okay, so my international man of mystery is a guy named Nathan Hegedus. He's an American, but he's got a Swedish wife. And the two of them moved to Sweden from the U.S. about 10 years ago when their daughter was around a year old. Nathan worked for a Swedish company in Stockholm for about six months, and then he became eligible for Swedish paternity leave. Lucky guy. Yep. Nathan had a golden ticket to the good life. All he had to do was ask his bosses for it. I really wanted to take it, but I had an absolute panic attack about asking for it. It just seemed like, how, do, how would I ever go into the office and tell these people that, like, who just hired me that, like, hey, I'm going to be gone for six months. It just seemed so um, impossible to me. You know, one of the reasons that Nathan and his wife had moved to Stockholm in the first place was because of how hard work-life balance had been in the States. In the U.S., Nathan had been an editor at this mid-sized newspaper, and when he took three weeks off unpaid after his daughter was born, he says that someone in the newsroom told him that was the longest any guy there had ever taken. There were some fathers that I know that had babies there while I was there, who were back, like, almost immediately, you know, you get two weeks of vacation time, and they would take, like, two days of their vacation and then come back. Ugh. And then when he did come back to work, he says there was this huge amount of social pressure to, you know, like, stay late and stay glued to the police scanner. So after experiencing all that in the States, the idea of taking this luxurious extended paternity leave in Sweden just kind of broke Nathan's brain. The day that he asked for leave, he actually was so nervous he hid out at home and just sent an email. But Nathan says that his Swedish bosses were like, well, yeah, you're a dad with a baby. Of course you're going to take some leave. I was later, I was later asked to like, maybe you could give us more notice next time. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and that was it. Nathan was granted the keys to the magical kingdom of Swedish parental leave. What does this magical kingdom look like? I, I'm I'm sitting here picturing like a um, a Judd Apatow movie starring Paul Rudd called um, Valor Papas. <laughs> well, Hillary, times have changed in Sweden. There are no more Valor Papas. Oh, I want the Valor Papas. <laughs> I know. Now, though, they're called Latte Papas. And they're kind of like Stockholm sex symbols. You know, these like chill diaper bag toting egalitarian dudes just like sipping coffee and enjoying daddyhood. These guys are everywhere, out pushing strollers, hanging out with other dads on the playground. And so I was really struck by sitting around with these really cool, stylish, hipster looking guys. You know, you'd think they'd be talking about soccer or bands or, you know, or their jobs or, you know, and they would just be talking about their kids, what their, what their kids like and how their kid sleeps and what their kid was eating. So, so you're telling me I nailed it. It's a Judd Apatow movie starring Paul Rudd. <laughs> yeah, almost. Paul Rudd in capri pants. Nathan says that while he was there, that was the style. It was the late 2000s after all. Judd Apatow, please make this movie. <laughs> Now, as I mentioned, in Sweden, most guys take at least some parental leave now. So there's this whole system built in for it. Nathan says that a big focal point of his life are these open preschools run by the municipalities. There's one or two of them in every town. And basically what they are are these playrooms loaded up with age-appropriate toys. There are a few teachers who lead activities like music or story time or baking. And parents just bring their kids there and come to sip coffee and socialize. And you'd go and you'd like strip off all the, the layers and then just go play. 
you know, it became a real central place for our family. We really got to know the teachers and um, it was just so important for me to have a place that wasn't just the, uh, our very small apartment. Plus, aren't, aren't Swedish winters just super long and dark? Yes, totally. And Nathan says he loved having a reason to get out and see people. And he says seeing all these dads out there with their kids, it really had an effect on him. Before moving to Sweden, if you had asked him to imagine the movie of the Latte Papas... Yes, please. Can I imagine that some more? Yeah. So here's where his American mind would have gone. I think I had this idea that we'd all be kind of fumbling about and it would be like comical and or embarrassing, you know, like drinking beer or, you know, or, or like, yeah, like poop going everywhere and like not having food or having the wrong food or like letting their kids jump from the top of the tree. Now, of course, Nathan's exaggerating a little here, but, you know, the point is that these stereotypes are really hard to shake. At least they are until you're sitting there in Stockholm surrounded by all these examples of these chilled out ultra-competent dads everywhere you look. Uh, So what you're telling me is Latte Papas would be just a really boring movie? (laughs) Yeah, actually, Hillary, I think we don't want Judd to make this one. Uh, All right, fine. (laughs) And Nathan was surprised at how quickly he felt like one of those competent dads. There's this one particular thing that he says he was especially awesome at. Yeah, I mean, my symbol for it was, was what I called the snack bag. The snack bag, a.k.a. the diaper bag, the ultimate symbol of dad mastery. I could go on a cross-town three-bus trip with two kids in a stroller, and I would be packed and ready, you know, for everything. Pacifiers, the right toys, the right food. You know, I really took it as an an achievement (laughs) challenge, I think. It's like, oh, my kid's hungry. Here's the apple. Or, oh, my kid's hungry. Oh, she hates this kind of baby food. I've got this. It was this sense of a happiness, let's say, just during the day that like, oh, I've got this. It was a lot of small moments built up. You know, Hillary, what Nathan's saying right here, it sounds like a small thing, but it's actually huge. Like, I asked Nathan why he thought packing the diaper bag was such a big deal to him, and he told me it's because it's something that he never did when he was living in the U.S. Not because he didn't want to, but just because, you know, his wife was a little bit better at it. She'd been home that whole first year after their daughter was born, and, you know, she just knew the right stuff to put in it. She had her own whole system going. Yeah, it just just takes a little practice, right? And in our culture, moms tend to get more of that. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this pattern is one of the major culprits behind that whole mental load we've been talking about in the series. You know, that extra burden of housework and organizing that women have to carry a lot of the time. But there's evidence that dads who take just like two weeks of parental leave do more diaper changing and feeding when their kid's nine months old than dads that don't. And there was a study in Quebec which has a kind of similar program to the Daddy's Month that found that just five weeks of leave increases dads' participation in household chores by 23%. That's a lot. Yeah, it is. It's the difference between a partner that helps out and one that's like really, truly a co-parent. Well, Kristen, this this Daddy Month um, sounds great for equality between parents at home, uh, but but what's it like at work? It seems like it's made for more equality there, too. The government did a study of married couples in Sweden that found that for every month a father took off for paternity leave, his wife's earnings increased by 7%, which is no joke. And the study attributed the difference to the fact that the couples were sharing work more fairly at home. 
So I'm imagining how this could play out with hiring managers too. Like like maybe um, when people are hiring, they have no idea who might take parental leave, right? So it, it could be a woman in her 30s. It could be a guy in his 20s. So so maybe that means there's less discrimination. Yeah, I mean, that part's a little bit more complicated. So I talked to a manager in Stockholm who says that when she hires a man, she knows that if he has a kid, she can probably expect him to take at least some leave, often several months. But overall, men are still taking only a little bit more than a quarter of all the paid parental leave in Sweden, which means that women are still taking the rest. And, you know, and those big long career interruptions are still probably keeping women's wages from catching up to men's as fast as they maybe could be. Ah. Uh. That's a bummer. That's that's still an issue. Yeah, yeah. Which is why there's actually a big push right now in Sweden to take this even further. You know, maybe mandate that moms and dads split their leave right down the middle or find other ways of incentivizing dads to take more of it. You know, and those ideas are still pretty controversial for all those same government meddling reasons. But I feel like what's clear here is that the policy has laid some serious groundwork for more equality down the road. For instance, Nathan says that Swedish workplaces are super family conscious. No one even blinks when a man announces that he has to go pick up his kids from preschool or that he has to stay home because they're sick or that he has to work from home for any reason or that he has to take someone to the doctor's appointment. No one even blinks. Hillary, 90% of Swedish women re-enter the workforce after having kids. That's compared with around 70% of moms in the U.S. And when Swedish women do come back to work, it's mostly to the same job that they left, which kind of indicates that they're having an easier time than American women are managing work-life balance, you know? Right, like they, they don't feel like they have to totally upend their life after having a kid. Yeah, and from what Nathan tells me, it sounds like dads aren't getting such a bad deal either. So I was the, I, I wanted to be the ideal worker. And um, I think it was wrecking me, especially once I was given this like time with my kids and all this. It's really like, well, what is meaningful in life? So Kristen, back to my original question. This all sounds great for Sweden and, and guys who luck into Sweden like Nathan, but what does it have to do with us? Well, so I checked in with Bridget Schulte. You remember her from the second episode in the series? Yeah, of course. She She's the one who wrote that book, Overwhelmed. Yeah. And she says that universal paid leave policies are just really critical for keeping people from falling through the cracks. You know, people like Keisha. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are places where these sorts of policies are actually starting to take hold. Like California has universal paid family leave. Places like New York and Washington, D.C. and Washington State are rolling those out soon. But I think the thing that Sweden has taught me is that there are a bunch of interlocking problems here. So one of them is, you know, government policy, but another big one is culture. What Sweden succeeded in doing is they made it so that everyone, men and women, were talking about leave and taking it. You know, they took the realities of being a parent and they made that conversation this just totally normal part of everyday life in the workplace. Yeah, like not not just this annoying thing that moms do. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, in Sweden, the government policy part came first, 
But there are ways to work on the culture part. Like, dads, you can take your parental leave. Dads, take all of your parental leave. (laughs) Yeah. It's been shown that actually if you take paternity leave in your workplace, the guys around you are 11% more likely to take it. Wow. Yeah. That's that's some peer pressure right there. (laughs) Yeah. Amp up the peer pressure. I mean, I, I think if there's one thing that I've taken away from this whole series is that this is a really entrenched problem in American culture. It goes really, really deep. Right. I mean, discrimination against moms is so common. I think we, we've kind of come to expect it in the American workplace. Yeah. But, you know, there are different ways you can attack it. You can attack it by standing up for yourself and, and reporting discrimination. You can attack it by lobbying for universal policies that will help everyone. And you can tackle it culturally, just in your own workplace, in your own neighborhood, in your own family. No matter who you are, there is a way that you can help chip away at this problem. This problem, which is a real mother, guys. <laughs> You can find all the resources you need on how to pitch in no matter who you are at itsarealmother.com. And we want to hear the ways that you've been stepping up, especially you dads. Leave your comment at longestshortesttime.com in the blog post for this episode. That's episode 145. This podcast is produced by me, Hillary Frank, with Kristen Clark and Abigail Keel. And today we say farewell to Abigail, who will be moving on to produce a new podcast here at Stitcher. For two years, Abigail has made sure that nothing ever, ever slips through the cracks on our show. She's reported some of your favorite episodes about 100-year-olds and boobs, not all in the same episode. (laughs) She was a driving force behind this Working Mom series. Abigail, we're going to miss you terribly, and we wish you the best of luck in your new gig. We had production help today from Jackie Sajiko, Thomas Henley, Meredith Johnson, Colleen Leahy, and Benoit Derrier. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Leighton Brown. We also use music this week from the Batteries Duo. We get editorial support from Anne-Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Reka Murthy. Special thanks this week to Katherine Goldstein and to Cindia Cameron and Casey Yoder at 9to5. Next week, audience favorite sex therapist Esther Perel is back on our show, and she will be answering your questions about infidelity. Sometimes an affair doesn't break a relationship, it remakes a relationship. And it becomes a powerful alarm system that jolts people out of complacency and out of laziness and out of disconnection and makes them stand in front of each other with a level of honesty and depth that they haven't had in years. Do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. You guys, this conversation about working moms is not over. Think of this series as a conversation starter. Keep using the hashtag It's a Real Mother to share your thoughts on workplace discrimination or to highlight what your workplace is doing well. We like to hear happy things too. The life of a working mother, it's a real mother. Let's change it. It's a real mother.com. Da, 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 da,